0: listening
1: to ohio versus the world an american history podcast subscribe and follow the show on itunes stitcher spotify or wherever you get your podcasts and don't forget to join the conversation on facebook or at our website ohio the world podcast.com ohio versus the world is part of the evergreen podcast network go to evergreenpodcast.com for all our past episodes now here's your host alex Hasty.
2: Welcome back, everybody. It's episode five, Ohio vs. Bravery, and today we'll be talking about the Civil War. Something we talk about at least once a season, whether it's our episode on General Sherman from Lancaster, Ohio, or one of my favorite episodes from our third season about Kate Chase, the Bell of the Civil War North. All of our old episodes can be found at evergreenpodcast.com. Ohio be the world's part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Like I said, go back and look the show up. You can find any of our old episodes with Evergreen. Today on episode five, Ohio vs. Bravery, we're gonna be talking about the Black Civil War experience. Over 200,000 African-American men served in the US Army and the US Navy during the war. We've got four amazing Civil War experts to come on the show today to talk about the biggest battles, the biggest heroes of the USCT. That's the terminology that we'll use, that was what they called it back then, the United States Colored Troops. And look, the Civil War was ultimately about slavery. 20th century Southern apologists, historians try to push this narrative about the lost cause and states' rights, and yes, the Civil War can be about Union and slavery at the same time, and it was. But who had more to lose if the North lost the war? Who risked more if they were captured during the war than the Union Army's African American soldiers? Because believe me, you did not want to be a black POW in the South. That's if you were lucky enough to not get executed when you got caught. Not to mention you're putting your life on the line for a country that considers you less than a citizen. And obviously, we've come a long way in race relations in this country, but this episode is the Dark Ages, the low point for race relations in America. I mean, how racist was America? Half of it was willing to go to war with the other half for four years. It caused 600,000 American deaths just to keep blacks in bondage. That's crazy. A couple of quick show notes today. Don't forget, we have our Great Ohio vs. the World t-shirts for sale. We'll get them back on the website shortly. But in the meantime, you can just email us, ohiovtheworld.com at gmail.com. Message us on Facebook. We just need your size and your address. Uh, it's $15 free shipping, and there's soft, really comfy shirts. We've sent a few out here in the last week or two. And also, while you're at it, follow us on Facebook. There's content there pretty much every day. Uh, you can chat with us on there, too. Uh, almost 2,000 of you guys have already done so, but that's the best way to follow the show on a daily basis. We're on Instagram at Ohio v the World Podcast. We're also on Twitter at OhiovtheWorld. Also, go rate and review the show on iTunes or wherever you get the you know the podcast. Really helps the show. We will read your reviews on the air. I said that, and and this recent one came from Lily three nineteen, a five star review it said, an "Excellent podcast. That's both informative and entertaining, and also has a nice calming effect when I listen." Highly recommend, not just for people from Ohio, but for anyone interested in hi- in history. Thanks for the, the five stars there, Lily. But enough chit chat. You know, this episode falls on Juneteenth, this upcoming weekend the day in June nineteenth, eighteen 1865, that slavery was ended in Texas. These are the men that brought us Juneteenth and the end of slavery in America. It's time to follow the African-American Civil War experience from emancipation to the battlefield to victory and freedom. Well, not total freedom. It's Episode 5, Ohio vs. Bravery. September 17, 1862, the Union finally got a big win. The Union Army stopped General Lee and the Army of Northern Virginia's advance into the north at the Battle of Antietam in Maryland. Pennsylvania was next on the invasion list, but that incursion was halted that day at a great cost to both sides. The bloodiest day in American military history, 23,000 soldiers killed, wounded, captured, missing. This hard-won victory at Antietam gave Lincoln the opening. And he announced his Emancipation Proclamation. That proclamation would go into effect on New Year's Day, 1863, declaring all four million Southern blacks free. It actually didn't free enslaved African Americans in the border states that were still part of the Union Maryland, Kentucky, Missouri, even Delaware had slaves. Lincoln couched this order as a military necessity, but no one was really freed by the Emancipation Proclamation itself. As monumental as that day was, it's not well received at the time by most Americans in the North. Our first guest is Kelly Missouri, Civil War historian, professor of history at Walsh University here in Ohio. She discussed the feelings on the ground at the time of the proclamation and how it opened the door to black Americans serving in the Union Army. Ultimately, this was an important step to the preservation of the United States and the freeing of all slaves. But that wasn't so clear on New Year's Day, 1863 to some Americans.
1: This played a critical part in helping to prevent the destruction of the United States. But that's something that's much clearer to us today. In 1863, it had the potential to threaten the success. We had many people loyal to the country that were uncomfortable. They were, they were angry that the federal government would turn a war to preserve the nation into one of abolition. And the Emancipation Proclamation made that clear. So loyal citizens wanted to support this turn uh, to the war. But particularly in Ohio, I'll speak to white citizens were very aware of what allowing Black men into military service meant. Again, this had been denied in Ohio since 1803. It had been denied at the federal levels. Allowing an African American to join military service opened the door to conversations about citizenship, about suffrage, about equal rights. Almost all white Americans did not approve of this so yes it it, we know it's a pivotal moment but it's not that clear at the time
2: even with the doors open to recruiting black regiments in early 1863 only one state jumped on it massachusetts led by the their abolitionist spirit their progressive governor john andrew they began a national recruiting effort to field a black regiment in the union army the regiments would be segregated black and white with white officers leading the new black troops they're known as the united states colored troops Blacks had served on behalf of the United States in active duty in the past, although no one at the time seemed to recognize or remember that. Our next guest is Verb Washington, a retired colonel in the US Army Associate Dean at the University of Dayton, and the author of the book Eagles on Their Buttons, a black regiment, a black infantry regiment in the Civil War. And Verb's book focused on the first Black Ohio Regiment, the fifth USCT regiment. But the motivation for African Americans in eighteen sixty three was different. Real equality for the first time seemed achievable with the Emancipation Proclamation. Black leaders like Frederick Douglass began speaking across the North to rally support for black troops. We asked Verb about the title of his book, Eagle on Their Buttons, and how it comes from a Douglass speech, a famous speech in the spring of 1863. What exactly was on the line for African Americans?
3: Once let the black man get upon his person, the brass letters U.S., let him get an eagle on his button and a musket on his shoulder and bullets in his pocket, And there is no power on the earth or under the earth that can deny that he has earned the right to citizenship. Frederick Douglass said this uh, a number of times uh, in his recruiting efforts, perhaps most notably on July 6th of 1863 uh, in a speech called The Negroes and the National War Effort uh, in Philadelphia. As historians have discussed at length, African-Americans viewed military service as a means to citizenship and equality. Through martial prowess, we hoped to prove to the skeptical, prejudiced white majority that they were worthy for inclusion into the American country as free and equal citizens by enlisting uh, the prominent Black Philadelphian Alfred Green noted in 1861 that African Americans would follow the examples of their forefathers who had fought in the Revolutionary War and the War of 1812. The current generation could create anew our claim upon the justice and honor of the republic Uh, reminding the nation that African Americans had fought for its freedom from the very beginning with little recognition and reward for their patriotism. The time had come, they implied, to redress this wrong. Uh, This is a pretty common theme throughout our nation's history. The Blacks have wanted to fight to be as part of the country, to be seen as equal citizens. And time and again, in time of war and crisis, uh, Blacks have joined the military ranks, uh, have fought for the country, uh, and then have been largely discarded in the uh, in the years after. This is really no different from what is going to happen to them following the, uh, the Civil War.
2: As we said before, blacks had served in the American Revolution, War of 1812, but of course, white America did not seem to remember that. This racist idea that somehow blacks were not to be counted on to serve with bravery and honor, it persisted. Our next guest, the great Civil War historian and author of 2016's Thunder at the Gates, about the famous 54th and 55th regiments of the USCT, we're joined by a professor at Le Moyne College in Syracuse, New York, Doug Edgerton, and he came to discuss this idea of, of black cowardice and unfitness for service. We asked Doug if that belief in the North was simply 19th-century racism.
4: Well, that that was pretty much it, um, and and there was a a willful, conscious forgetting about previous black military service. Um, and during the revolution, both Connecticut and Rhode Island had basically all black regiments led by white officers. Whites just, I think, tried very hard to kind of forget about that. And, and some black internet would write a piece saying, don't forget the 54th and, and Battery Wagner is went on right into the 20th century. And of course, President Wilson was not anxious for black men to serve. And so the black press is still beating that drum and saying, you know, don't forget about Battery Wagner. Whites in the North were, were kind of all over the board on this. One one argument was the blacks were, were inherently childlike; uh, they were they were timid. If if they saw battle, they would run from from battle. And, you know, bear in mind, um, unless you lived in Philadelphia, Manhattan, parts of New England, you didn't know a whole lot of black people. Uh, right. I mean, there was there was one AME church here in my Syracuse, and of course Frederick Douglass was down the canal in Rochester, and and so you know just a lot of white folks in in Ohio just you know didn't really know that many people of color so they bought into this kind of racist idea that, that blacks you know were so childlike the first time they see action they'll put the gun down and run for it the other argument uh like john j crittenden who was a kentucky uh, ex-whig stayed with the u.s of course um his argument was that blacks couldn't be controlled by white officers and they would become this kind of rapacious mob and, and a handful of white Captains and colonels would try to stop them, but as soon as they got into the South, they would they would misbehave in a spectacular way. And despite the fact of people like Nat Turner and Denmark Vesey, that was also the argument right, in the South. Yeah. And I came across one soldier who wrote to his mother and said, "Listen, I'm happy to have black black troops in the U.S. The first time they see battle, they'll throw the guns down, and Rhine will simply collect the weapons and have more more guns." Uh, which is what made the July 18 attack on Fort Wagner just such a, a revelation for the North.
2: Massachusetts began recruiting black troops from all over the country, not just New England, and hundreds answered the call. But no other states budged on, on opening their enrollment, so black Ohioans began traveling to Reedville, Massachusetts, uh, outside of Boston, to enlist in the 54th. The 54th Regiment and the soon-to-be-created 55th are the most famous black regiments. If you remember the movie Glory, with Morgan Freeman Denzel Washington, that was about the 54th Massachusetts. We talked to Doug Edgerton about why Massachusetts was the only state that black troops began training in early 1863. You were
4: first called up by by the state, by the governor. And so in this case, Massachusetts had a good Republican governor, a longtime anti-slavery advocate, uh, John Andrew. And so you're in a small town, Maine, Fort Sumter. Kind of happens, and so you and your brother and your cousin and your best friend, you go down and enlist in, in the main 20th. Uh, you then get folded into the larger US Army, the Army of the Potomac, that kind of thing. So a lot of governors, especially conservative Democratic governors, um, did not want Black men to serve. I, you know, I live in New York, and Horatio Seymour um, was, was the, the conservative Democratic governor. Um, and they didn't want Black men to serve in part because people like Frederick Douglass had made it very clear. Um, if Black men serve, their citizens, and again, according to the Dred Scott decision, they weren't. Um, so, Douglas assumed correctly the black men could then leverage military service into being citizens, into being voters, which they were not in Ohio, Illinois, Indiana. Um, and so, for that reason, you know, and people, people like Governor Todd in Ohio, he would become a Republican, but he was a lifelong Democrat. Um, and when recruiters came to a state, he said, "This is a white man's war. You know, we're fighting for white, you know, you know, white civilization." Um, So so it really was John Andrew, who was the only guy who wanted to recruit Blacks. So if you were an Ohio farm boy, or there's 13 guys from my county up here on Niagara County who get on a train and go to Reedville outside of Boston and uh, and serve. Ironically, Massachusetts is the first state to, to call for Black soldiers. I mean, it had so few Black men of the right age right physique, good health, that, in fact, the biggest contingents in the 54th were from Pennsylvania, New York was number two, and Ohio was number three.
2: The 55th USCT was born out of the overflow of the 54th Massachusetts. This was the 2nd Regiment of the United States Colored Troops. Nearly 250 Ohioans joined the regiment. We talk again with Doug Edgerton, the author of the excellent book, Thunder at the Gates, The Black Civil War Regiments That Redeemed America. From 2016, really great book. Check the show notes to buy it. Uh, it really is the definitive history of the Black Civil War soldier experience. But we asked Doug about the Ohioans who joined up in Massachusetts in the 55th Regiment. And, uh, again, the way the Civil War Regiment works, it's,
4: it's a 1,000 healthy men any given day. Um, so when 1001 arrive at Camp uh, Reedville, then they start the 55th Massachusetts, which is going kind of to be overflow regiment. And in part because they're coming from so far, coming from Ohio, Ohio does have the largest contingent in the 55th Massachusetts regiment. Uh, they were more working class other than the 54th. I mean, the 54th, again, was, was working class, middle class. They were not you know, wealthy kids by any means. But there's 247 from Ohio in, in the 55th. So these were people who would gotten away in the 50s. Uh, their parents had gotten away in the 40s. They'd been born a slave. They're, you know, they're farmhands, working class jobs in Cleveland and, you know, places like that.
2: We kind of stole a, a literary device that Doug used in his book, Thunder at the Gates. He looks at 14 individuals in these famous black regiments to explain the larger black experience before, during, and after the war. We're going to do that in our episode by looking at three of the bravest Ohioans in our history. All three served with distinction in the Civil War. The first of those Ohioans was uh, James Monroe Trotter from Chillicothe, Ohio. Uh, when the war broke out, he was a school teacher, educated at Wilberforce College, a historically black academic center, and now an HBCU in, in southwest Ohio. But he's born into slavery and would become the second black officer in the U.S. Army. We asked Doug about James Monroe Trotter and how he became a sergeant in the Massachusetts 55th in 1863 and how he got to Ohio to live in freedom before the war.
4: Yeah, Toronto was fascinating. So Trotter was born just below Vicksburg, Mississippi, 1842. And he's unusual for a lot of reasons. One is that he actually knew his precise birth date most slaves did. Frederick Douglass was off by a year and just kind of guessed, well, I'll choose Valentine's Day as my birthday. Toronto's military record says February 7, 1842. um, And what made him unusual is that his master was his father, which is not uncommon in the South. But his master actually seemed to live his mother. uh, His master was named Richard Trotter. Uh, His mother was a slave named Letitia. And finally, Richard Trotter got married um, to a white woman and apparently objected to his black family. So he he brought a young Trotter, Trotter's sister, Sally, um, and the mother Letitia, and basically kind of set them up in in Cincinnati, Uh, left them with some money, left them uh, with a a white minister uh, named named Hiram Gilmore, who was educating young black men, Um, and then went back into the South, and, and so Trotter was very white complected uh, He was well-educated, he was teaching music um, and, and arts, uh, and was engaged to be married when, uh, when the war broke out. So at the age of 21, he got on the train and went to um, Massachusetts um, and enlisted in the 55th, the Overflow Regiment.
2: In the summer of 1863, the South had pushed into Pennsylvania. The war was not only dragging on, you could argue the North was losing the war. The draft is being administered throughout the country. Morale is approaching an all-time low. Northern opinions on raising black regiments begins to change. This idea of the war being about union begins to shift towards a war to end slavery and reunion as well. But the governors of Ohio at the time of the start of the war, William Dennison, and then later in 1863, David Todd, they represent this shift in opinion from fervently against black soldiers to kind of warming up to the idea. Dennison, after leaving office, uh, becomes an actual supporter. We talk with Verb Washington a historian from the University of Dayton about this shift in northern attitudes.
3: So early in the war, African Americans had gone much as their white counterparts had and volunteered for service. And so for many of the, the blacks across the North, they saw this as their chance both to strike a blow for freedom uh, and to strike a blow for equality. Uh, neither of them were accepted by the government in 1861. Governor uh, Dennison said at the time that there was no way that uh, whites would allow blacks to serve, uh, saying that yeah, this would essentially uh, destroy the country. By 1863, uh, as the mounting losses and the, uh, the determination of the folks in the South to continue the fight, they, they came to recognize that they were going to need more and more men. Uh, to fight this war. And so the country was starting to face the idea of conscription for the first time. Uh, and Northern governors began to see that perhaps recruiting Blacks would be a way to accomplish this. Massachusetts's success in raising the 54th Massachusetts Regiment gave Northern governors the possibility of avoiding that draft uh, by enlisting Black men who press for their chance. Uh, so Todd was very much pragmatically interested uh, in recruiting Blacks at, at this point. Dennison, uh, whose politics had caused him to reject the pleas of Blacks for more active participation while he was governor, became a supporter of Blacks as a private citizen and could be found at recruiting events, the regiment's colors presentation, uh, and spoke on their behalf throughout the war. I would say that both men really emblematized the, uh, the way that the country felt. Uh, in lots of ways, the the war uh, although we recognize that it was largely about the institution of slavery now, uh, it was discussed in, in very much terms of union until 1863, at which point it really became a, uh, a struggle for union and the ab- abolition of slavery uh, as a combined factor. And so both of these men, as they began their shift uh, in if not their attitudes, at least their actions, uh, really showed what the country was thinking at the same time. Uh, one of the more amusing pieces that I had seen in a newspaper article at the time uh, talked about the fact that why would I have trouble with Blacks going into the military? They can take a ball as well as I could.
2: As a result of this shift by Governor Todd, Ohio begins raising a Black regiment. The 127th Ohio Volunteer Infantry had later become the 5th USCT, Herb Washington tells us about Camp Delaware, where the Black Ohioans would train and form this 5th Regiment. It's also where later in the year of the 27th USCT, the 2nd Ohio Black Regiment would be formed and trained. The camp was on the Olentangy River in Delaware, Ohio, just north of Columbus, the hometown of Civil War General and future President of the United States, Rutherford B. Hayes.
3: Camp Delaware actually was two camps. Uh, the Union Army established the camps on both sides of the Olentangy River, Uh, during the Civil War. Uh, Both were known as Camp Delaware, though. The first on the west side of the river uh, was set up in the summer of 62, uh, where the white recruits of the 96th and the 121st regiments of OVI uh, were mustered into service. The second camp on the east side of the Olentangy was established in the summer of 63 and became the rendezvous point for most of the African-American Ohioans joining the army. Uh, The officers who led them uh, were a mix of political appointees and volunteers. The majority of the regiment's active service saw Giles Shirtliff of Oberlin commanding the regiment. The 127th mustered around 900 men into service at Camp Delaware, uh, and most of the men who had served in the 5th USCT came from either laboring or farming jobs. Uh, So about three-quarters of them uh, listed that as their jobs on their enlistment records. And the regiment, though, did have all types of occupations. Now, Ohio at that time still was under uh, what were known as the, the Black Codes, which prescribed the lives of Ohio's Blacks. And so they really hadn't ascended into the middle class in any meaningful way. Uh, they were clearly not full citizens, either in the eyes of white Ohioans or uh, or in the law.
2: Another one of those brave and underrecognized Ohio Black soldiers, uh, he also trained at Camp Delaware, was Robert Penn of Massillon, Ohio. Penn would go on to become a Black Medal of Honor winner, one of only 25 in the entire war. But he actually found a way to serve from the outset, and he was not alone among his black, his black colleagues. Our guest, Kelly Mazurik, tells us about Robert Penn, the recruiting of black troops. She touches on, on John Mercer Langston, a future black congressman from Ohio and a man who is at the center of so many crucial moments in U.S. history. Someone like our guest, Verb Washington, said, and we, and we agree, that he is just perfect for a podcast to do a whole episode on, and we will, with John Mercer Langston graduate of Oberlin College, lives a fascinating, consequential life. But Langston recruits Ohio men for the 54th and the 55th in Massachusetts, and men like you know J- James Monroe Trotter, those historic first two regiments. But he shifts his focus to the new Black All-Ohio Volunteer Infantry. Kelly Missouri, professor at Walsh University here in Ohio, talks to us about Robert Penn and the recruiting of Black troops.
1: He wants to serve for the United States when the war breaks out. Uh, but Ohio, of course, since its founding, um, we have a law that forbids uh, black males to serve in the militia, we have federal law. So what Pin does is he serves uh, as a servant for a local masculine uh, physician who's in a white regiment. When he returns home, uh, John Langston, prominent black lawyer from Oberlin, Ohio, and one of the recruiters for Governor Andrew out of Massachusetts, by 63, he uh, is now recruiting for Governor Todd in Ohio. And Langston comes to Massillon. And while he's there, uh, several Black men will enlist in the 5th, including Robert Pinn. And he is promoted to sergeant. So he's one of the non-commissioned officers of this regiment.
2: Our guest, Kelly Missouri, professor of history at Walsh University. She's also the author of the great book, For Their Own Cause, The 27th United States Colored Troops. In the 27th, they were the 2nd Ohio Regiment of African Americans who also mustered out at Camp Delaware, and they would enter the war in April 1864. As black soldiers enter the war, units like the 27th found themselves in the South. Many for the first time as they had been freedmen in the Buckeye State or they hadn't been in the South since they were children. We talk with Kelly about those Ohio soldiers' impressions and their experiences in the slave South.
1: The men that served in the 27th were overwhelmingly free people when the civil war broke out. So we do have a significant number that had at some point earlier in their lives, either lived in a slave state or were slaved at one time. And then you have a number of men uh, that crossed the river. So for example, from Virginia, they go into Athens County or from Kentucky, they go into Claremont County company. K of Twenty Seventh is, is made up of a large number of Kentuckians who Uh, take their own freedom in hand and join the regiment. But, but yeah, most of the men overall that serve in the 27th were free. And so they had either never been to a state with slavery, or it had been a very long time. And we have some firsthand accounts of what it was like. So they talk about even the topography of much of Ohio is very flat you know, talk about seeing mountains for the first time. those that didn't live by the Ohio River talked about seeing, you know, they cross a lot of rivers uh, during their service. As for the people themselves, generally their experience, not surprisingly, uh, white Southerners were angry or mean when they were around them. But for the black soldiers, one of the common reactions was how poor many of the white Southerners were. They were surprised by this, that they lived in, to them, ramshackle types of dwelling. As for coming into contact with enslaved or formerly enslaved people, you don't see a lot of that happening in Virginia. The 27th is almost always near those trenches on the Petersburg front. They are not interacting with locals, uh, white or Black. And so it's not really until they are joining Sherman's troops after uh, the fall of Wilmington that they are going to be around a number of locals and then in occupational duty in North Carolina, they begin to really interact. What we see is comments about how inquisitive uh, many of these Southern Blacks are. Uh, they, they, they want to uh, learn about these men uh, from Ohio. Uh, sometimes uh, they go to church together at local churches, have a number of men in the regiment who seek out local black healers because they're so unhappy with their white positions in the regiment. One of the scouting parties uh, that goes out from the 27th, they're foraging for supplies. And they bring back a number of newly freed people with them. And they hang out that night around a campfire. Uh, A few of the men from the 27th helped set up schools, more individual kind of teaching going on connected to the churches. There is um, curiosity on both sides. And I I believe, although uh, you don't see it written explicitly all the time, there's a great deal of pride that these Ohioans helped to change the lives of these people.
2: The first major battle involving black troops would take place at Fort Wagner, Battery Wagner as it was called. And the nation was watching. African Americans would attempt to storm this important fortress outside Charleston, South Carolina. Located near Folly Island, uh, Miss Ohio V of the World and I have had many trips to Charleston, one of my favorite American cities. We spent some wonderful time at Folly Beach there south of the city. But Wagner defended the entrance to Charleston Harbor. And all the important Fort Sumter and Fort Moultrie where the war began. Definitely worth the boat trip out to Fort Sumter if you find yourself in the holy city. this battle is also the climactic scene in that hit 1989 movie Glory. We talked with Tug about some of the historical inaccuracies of that movie. He's a fan, don't get me wrong, but he's perplexed by some of the simple mistakes they made. Uh, Like at Fort Wagner, Matthew Broderick playing the, the leader of the Massachusetts 54th, Robert Gould Shaw. Yeah, in the movie Glory, they have them attacking the fort from the north from the wrong side. But they do accurately depict the importance of Fort Wagner. That's the first major battle involving the Union's black troops. Men like the sons of Frederick Douglass, Lewis, and Charles serve in that fight. We talk with Doug about the battle of Fort Wagner in South Carolina.
4: Sure, so Fort Wagner was right outside, it was on Folly Island, right outside of Charleston Harbor. And of course, what the U.S. was trying to do was fight its way into Charleston Harbor and capture Charleston, and, and of course, Charleston was not the capital of South Carolina, but but every abolitionist, white or black, regarded Charleston as kind of the dark soul of the Confederacy. And, and Louis Douglas wrote to his father and said, man, I would just love to march in to Charleston. So they're trying to kind of fight their way in. Uh, fort Wagner or Battery Wagner. Um, batteries have three sides. Forts have four or more. Um, guarded Fort Sumter. So the plan is to capture this giant, it's basically a sand fort, um, turn the guns around, aim the guns at Sumter, capture Sumter, turn the guns around into Charleston, and then, and then kind of hammer Charleston. It got a lot of attention, in part because 54th, again, is the 1st Northern Regiment. There's other regiments. Um, and the 1st South Carolina, which is a contraband regiment, was already down... On the coast, but they're being used for foraging. They know the area, so so capturing Wagner is going to be the first kind of really big, you know, frontal assault. And actually, they, the the U.S. thought it would be a lot easier than it was. The the Navy had been shelling Fort Wagner for a long time, and, and um, uh, General George Crockett Strong, who was in charge of the operation, you know, said to the guys in the 54th that you know most of the guys inside the fort are, are dead or they're wounded. Um, and, and this is not going to be, it's going to be tough, but it's not going to be suicidal. And it turns out there was this giant, it was called a bomb, proof. It was just a sort of giant, you know, underground bunker, essentially. These guys had all been hiding in. And so, while well, Strong thought that the fort had been essentially liquidated, it had not been.
2: Our cover for this episode is that moment they stormed Fort Wagner and the death of their commanding officer, Robert Gould Shaw from Massachusetts. Despite losing their fearless leader, the black soldiers serve with bravery and honor. Doug talks to us about that battle and how the 1st Regiment of Black Civil War soldiers, the famous and pioneering 54th Massachusetts, they dispel these racist thoughts of the ability of African-American soldiers in combat.
4: The plan simply is to attack the fort, and so it's the evening of July 18. They get about a half a mile away from the fort, and they just sprint down the beach, heading toward Wagner, and, and Lewis Douglas writes this, this is scary letter back to his parents about, about bombs hitting either side and people just you know, being exploded and he keeps running on. And Shaw was right in front. Shaw again was 25 and got to the top of the wall and was waving a sword and shouting for them to come on and, and took seven bullets in the chest and fell into the fort. And so it was it was really, really tough fighting. 42% casualty. Casualty, of course, means killed and wounded. Um, and again, Lewis Douglas was badly shot with grape shot, I had to be mustered out. The press was watching. And so while it was, in fact, a failure. The fort was captured in September, but was not captured that night in July. You know, again, all these old notions that Blacks would, would throw the gun down, rot the opposite direction. These guys ran right into withering fire and never faltered once. Uh, Horace Greeley, who edited the New York Tribune, said this is their battle of Bunker Hill. This is this was the test, and they succeeded. And when Lincoln heard about again, Lincoln had doubts about, about Black troops. When Lincoln heard about Fort Wagner, he said this is... This is Time now to start recruiting a whole lot more black regiments. This this experiment is going to work. And it was an experiment. So if these guys had faltered on July 18, it would have been a very short-lived experiment in using black soldiers.
2: And despite the valor of the troops at Fort Wagner, African-American troops still faced a different treatment than white troops. Separate but not equal. The biggest and most upsetting difference in treatment for, for black soldiers in combat was money. The government in 1863 was paying black soldiers significantly less than its white soldiers. is a huge issue among the soldiers in service for obvious reasons. And many regiments talk about laying down their arms until the pay is equal. We talk with Verb Washington, a firm, former colonel in the U.S. Army, about the infamous pay gap.
3: Government decided to enlist blacks. Uh, they used a law that allowed them to bring them in uh, with the pay of common laborers. And so $10 a month was the pay for uh, Black soldiers. And the kind of galling part was that was the pay for privates, that was the pay for sergeants major. And so all of them were receiving substantially less pay than their white counterparts who were getting $13 a month as pay, uh, and then another $3 a month for uh, their uniforms and equipment maintenance. And so essentially, for a private, they were deficit of around $6. For a sergeant, it gets from between 11 to $16 a month. Uh, and so uh, they were earning far, far less than their, uh, their white counterparts. The difficulty, of course, is now that if you were going to protest this as a, a major feature of your service, uh, then the question comes up, okay, so why are we serving again? Is this about the money or is this about the opportunity to prove citizenship, manhood, etc. The real problem, though, for these soldiers was is that uh, for many of them who were coming off of the farms, this meant that their families now were going to be in significant financial difficulty because it was going to be hard to find someone to replace them on the farm or in their laboring jobs for the amount of money that the government was offering them initially. The good news was that this didn't last uh, that long from the time when the uh, the 5th USCT came into service. Uh, and so by the fall of, of 1864, uh, the government had made up the, uh, the pay, uh, essentially had given them back pay to make certain that their their time in service had all been at essentially the same rate as their uh, their white counterparts. So uh, they get a real bonus there in, in 1864. The soldiers of the 5th of the uh, tried to soldier on. The paymaster apparently was able to somehow give them uh, additional funds. It's not clear from the record how this happened, um, but a a number of the soldiers had remarked on the fact that their pay had been fine and that they were not interested in the the discussions that were going on, particularly in the 54th Massachusetts, about uh, the pay issue as a, a major source of contention. What was clear, though, is is that it was just another example of the inequality between the races that was seen for the soldiers of the time. It was a real problem.
2: Another very apparent difference was that black soldiers were not allowed to become officers. Lieutenants, captains, and the like. For the majority of the war, all black regiments had only white officers. Despite their heroic service that would have called for a series of promotions, black troops remained shut out of the officer's duty one of those who put up by superiors for multiple promotions with Chillicothe, Ohio native James Monroe Trotter from the Massachusetts 55th. He had been in combat. He had shown impressive leadership qualities, beloved among his men, yet he was refused a promotion to second lieutenant. We talk with historian and author Doug Edgerton about Trotter's eventual promotion, becoming the second African-American to achieve the rank of second lieutenant in the U.S. Army.
4: He finally did, but, but I mean, literally in the last moments of the war. So in fact, when he got to Reedville, because he was literate, and because he was light-skinned, and the reality is people who were literate, light-skinned, but maybe a little bit older, typically became sergeant. So as the war went on, and, and of course, he was in a variety of battles, his, his his officers kept nominating him to become a second lieutenant. And the, the agreement when when blacks first was all, were allowed to serve um, under Lincoln is that uh, the commissioned officers would be white, the non-commissioned officers, the corporals, the sergeants, would be black. And initially, that made sense. Part of it simply was kind of a a nod to northern racism but they were not allowed to serve till 63 the war had been going on for two years so you couldn't give a black regiment you know a black colonel who'd never seen action but as the war dragged on and people like stephen swales of new york who's the first person to become a commissioned officer um and trotter who's the second it's quite clear they have leadership ability they're courageous in battle they're natural leaders they've seen action um, and they deserve to be bumped up in the ranks and, and people kept saying, well, you know, the time isn't right, or, or there's no law that allows you to become a commissioned officer, and to which Trotter's response was, there's no law that says I can't be. And, and in fact, Governor Andrew kept nominating um, people like Swales Trotter, it actually it was the War Department uh, in Congress, uh, who kept turning people like, like, like Trotter. Down so finally in in April of '65 the War Department relents uh, he becomes the second Swales is the first the guy named Peter Vogelsang of New York is the third yeah, but the war is basically over at that point uh, so he does he does make the rank and it came with a nice pay bump you know it was pretty late and also one of the galling things was some of the white officers they were kids George Garrison uh, who's a lieutenant in the 55th is 18 and has no he's not been to West Point he has no military. Experience and so for some of these older guys and Swales was late 20s. They have these you know 17 year old, 18 year old white boys um, as a lieutenant, and they're stuck as a sergeant. You know, really was galling.
2: said at the beginning, we have four expert guests in this episode. We can finally bring out our fourth and final guest, Emanuel Dabney. Emmanuel, the museum curator, park ranger at Petersburg National Battlefield Park in Petersburg, Virginia. He joined us to talk about black soldiers and the infamous Battle of the Crater outside Petersburg in the early morning hours of July 30th, 1864. The war in Virginia that summer being waged by General Ulysses S. Grant was a savage one earned him the derision of many in the North as a butcher. Taking the fight and often losing to General Lee, Grant and the armies of the James and the Potomac, they fought. The Wilderness Campaign, battles like Spotsylvania or Cold Harbor, which the Union had 7,000 casualties in like 20 minutes. Following these bloodbaths, Grant and his generals, Ohio's Ambrose E. Burnside, and George Meade, the winning general at Gettysburg, they set their sights on Petersburg, a fairly large city by 1864 southern standards and the last major industrial city between Grant and the Confederate capital of Richmond, a mere 25 miles away. We talked to Emmanuel Dabney about the importance of Petersburg, Virginia to the Southern War effort and how the initial fighting would devolve into a siege with trenches.
0: The shift towards Petersburg is centered on Petersburg's abilities of its industrial might, and though not as powerful as Richmond, uh, it was an important industrial city. It was cranking out material uh, for the Confederate war effort, and its rail support, it was moving supplies and goods from other places and from Petersburg to the Confederate capital or from the Confederate capital at Richmond, only 25 miles to the north. And once those initial assaults are gonna stall out on the evening of June 18th, at this point in the Civil War, Both armies are pretty addicted to protecting themselves with uh, earthen fortifications.
2: As these armies shot at each other and stared across No Man's Land, across their trenches in June 1864 outside Petersburg, a Pennsylvania Lieutenant Colonel Henry Pleasance heard an idea from his men. Why don't we tunnel a mine underneath the Confederate position, fill it with gunpowder, and blow it up? His men are Pennsylvania coal miners, and they look across the No Man's Land and see the Confederate front lines about 400 feet away and they believe they can build a tunnel. Underneath that 400 feet, General Burnside signed off on it, and a series of events that would culminate in the infamous Battle of the Crater were underway.
0: It's really just days after arriving here that Colonel Pleasant is sort of assessing the space between the forward line, the horseshoe as the Federal troops referred to it, and the Confederate position across from them. And he believes that it is possible to mine the Confederate position, blow a hole into their line, and seize Petersburg and an assault afterwards. The digging of the mine starts on June 25th, and it takes just about a month for the mine to get completed, two galleries to be dug beneath the Confederate forces, and the gunpowder to Arrive Only ends up getting 8,000 pounds of gunpowder. He had wanted more.
2: The days leading up to the explosion, Burnside is finalizing his attack plan. Blow the bomb under the Southerners, plan a charge on their position. One of the still contested issues about the Battle of the Crater among historians is whether the black troops that were there were specifically trained for the assault following the explosion. The African-American regiment, the, the 27th USCT from Ohio, They were there, and they were thought to maybe have received some training as the first troops into the fight after the explosion. The 30th USCT Infantry, another black regiment, uh, was said to have possibly had training. But either way, black troops were going to be the first uh, into the fight in Burnside's battle plan. But his superior, George Meade, changes the plan just a few days before. In some cases, troops find out just hours before the attack. We talk with Emmanuel Dabney from the Petersburg National Battlefield, about the change in plans involving black troops. Meade
0: and Burnside have a pretty heated disagreement on July 28th, so two days before the battle. Meade is going to talk to the Lieutenant General commanding the armies, Ulysses Grant, at his headquarters at City Point. And Burnside doesn't go to this meeting because no one invited him to it. While in Grant and Meade are meeting Meade expresses his concerns about using these non-veteran troops first and doesn't really represent Burnside's perspective very strongly. So Grant agrees with Meade that they should use the white troops in advance. And and that is going to not trickle back to Burnside until the day before the battle on on July 29. And it won't get to the U.S. colored troops who were ready to go we have been singing songs, at least for some of them, uh, about going into combat in uh, first time for some of these regiments uh, until really the overnight hours of July 29th, early morning of July 30th.
2: At 4.44 a.m. on the morning of July 30th, 1864, the bomb went off. One of the greatest man-made explosions in human history detonated beneath a group of South Carolina and Virginia Confederate soldiers. Here's how it was described by a member of the Michigan 20th who was there that morning. A heaving and lifting of the fort and the hill on which it stood. Then a monstrous tongue of flame shot fully 200 feet in the air, followed by a vast column of white smoke. Then a great spout, a fountain of red earth rose to a great height, mingled with men and guns and timber and planks and every other kind of debris, all ascending, spreading, whirling, scattering end quote: "The Battle of the crater had begun."
0: There are about 270 to 300 Confederate casualties in the initial explosion. There's a South Carolina brigade that's manning this position uh, and a Virginia artillery battery uh, that, was, that was in it. They are going to you know, have the brunt of the initial casualty loss. It takes about five to 10 minutes for following the explosion for all this debris and all of the earth and all these charred and flaming human remains and the material that they had with them within the earthworks to sort of settle back down onto the land. And for the federal infantry, now white troops uh, in front, uh, to begin to emerge into combat.
2: The Union starts an artillery barrage at the Confederates after the explosion. The northern men, the white troops, charge directly into the explosion area. Emmanuel talks about the beginning of the battle and how many Union troops would actually be just overcome by the terrible scene they encounter when they cross no man's land. They actually start trying to dig out some of these southern men. This is a a very kind act, but one that the Confederates used to get their defenses in order. Rush men and artillery to the attack point, which is now just a giant hole in the ground.
0: They get to the explosion site and it's nothing really like it looked like today when visitors come. There was no green grass growing. There wasn't any trees to shield people from the sun as, as it was rising that morning. Instead, they are wounded and dead people that have been ripped apart by the 8,000 pounds of gunpowder. They're shockingly people who have not been hurt at all that are still alive, but they're wriggling about in all of the earth uh, that has fallen back down. Uh, onto the ground, there's the ruined Confederate artillery battery, which is now a hole in the ground. It's about 30 feet deep, 60 feet wide, about 170 feet long. The Confederates numerically, yes, are are weakened, but the Federals are going to start encountering uh, some problems almost immediately. They have to get up and out of their own earthwork system, they have to make it through this no man's land between the two armies. Oddly enough, through war, these sort of moments happen where humanity sometimes rises to the fore. And federal troops talk about not being able to ignore their Confederate enemies. And so they go and start pulling people out that they can send to the rear as prisoners and, and rescue them from, from the clay that they are surrounded in providing some water or last words spoken uh, to those who were dying. Uh, And and they are also beginning to follow the the new battle plan, which uh, was not Burnside's original plan, but George Meade's plan of get as quickly from the federal line to the center of the Confederate line to press on to Petersburg. The problem facing them now was that the center of the Confederate line includes a hole that I've just described, all of this debris and bodies around it, and increasing amounts of Confederate artillery firing in their direction.
2: If you get the chance, watch the Civil War movie Cold Mountain. Jude Law, Nicole Kidman, Natalie Portman, the late great Philip Seymour Hoffman— One of the early scenes is like a gripping 10-minute set piece about the Battle of the Crater. Jude Law's character is there. It's not entirely accurate, but it is powerful. It's on the level with the Normandy scene from Saving Private Ryan. The Battle of the Crater is called that because a number of the advancing federal troops actually rush into the crater. You ask yourself, what the hell? It's hard to explain. Obviously, not all these thousands of men run into the crater, but some do. These guys are trained to find cover, and that's the biggest foxhole anyone's ever seen. The problem is that there are 30-foot walls on each side of this red clay mud hole they've created. Many soldiers go in and they never come out. They're stuck. They're fish in a barrel. The Confederates begin to mount a counterattack, and the Battle of the Crater turns into a military disaster for the North.
0: Yes, there are people stuck in the crater. Are there, you know, reasons as to what's sort of happening in this falling apart of the federal uh, attack? Lack of leadership. There's a number of commanders who are not actually with their troops. Lack of leadership that there are a number of officers who are with their troops and the Confederates are targeting getting rid of them because officers help keep control and, of course, are giving orders. Flag bearers during the Civil War are under threat because those colors help guide people as to where their units are. Those men are being targeted as well sort of get rid of them as rapidly as possible. The Confederates are infuriated. Once once the orders come through, William Mahone is gonna be moving portions of his division into the assault. They are infuriated to find black men promising not to take them prisoner and to remember Fort Pillow.
2: Remember Fort Pillow. It's like the call in Texas, you know, the Battle of San Jacinto, uh, to remember the Alamo. Fort Pillow in Tennessee was the site of a battle just 10 weeks before the crater. Nathan Bedford Forrest, Confederate general, stormed the fort. Union you know, soldiers surrender. Forrest's men execute 300 Union troops, most of them black. Forrest, who had gone to be the first Grand Wizard of the Knights of the Ku Klux Klan, refused to take prisoners highly controversial event in the war and black troops use it as motivation to not take southern prisoners. The regiments of the USCT enter the fight at approximately 8 a.m. It's more than three hours after the blast. They're originally supposed to be the first men in but now they're the last. The battle is fierce hand-to-hand face-to-face combat as bad as it gets but ultimately the black troops are not able to turn the tide. The Confederates win a decisive victory. The Battle of the Crater is an epic defeat for the Union Army
0: they're gonna to have to cross that same no man's land that now has artillery shell fragments, whole shells, bullets whizzing, wounded and dead. Uh, but as they go across this space, they are informing the Confederates as much as each other to remember Fort Pillow is screaming no quarter. So this hand-to-hand combat sort of develops during uh, the Battle of the Crater and will begin to really play a big role into dissolving the extent of the federal breakthrough, pushing troops back towards the horrid pit, as one of the federal troops called it, and off the battlefield. It's a battle that began, of course, early in the morning. It's not going to sort of end until about 2.30 in the afternoon. It's a day of another day at Petersburg at that point of extreme heat conditions, temperatures in excess of 100 degrees. People are running out of ammunition, out of water. At some point during the fighting, at least one uh, federal officer yells throughout all of this hand-to-hand combat. Uh, A Confederate soldier says, why don't you surrender? And a federal officer says, why don't you let us? Mm. Some time after that, the, the fighting sort of dies down. And the casualties for, for the Confederates about 1,500 or so troops killed, wounded, captured, missing. Uh, and the Ninth Corps lost with part of the Army, the James's 10th Corps. Uh, Just under 4,000 men and and a significant amount of those casualties came from uh, Edward Ferrero's division of United States Colored Troops. For Grant, he refers to this as the saddest affair that he had witnessed during the war.
2: Thanks again to Emanuel Dabney. You can go see him and his colleagues at the Petersburg National Battlefield Park in Virginia. I was there as a kid, as you can imagine by by how I turned out, that my parents had me visit a, a good number of Civil War battlefields in my youth, especially on those drives to the Outer Banks for vacation every summer. Virginia and Maryland, even North Carolina, ripe with Civil War battlefields and museums. But as Emanuel reminds visitors to Petersburg, the Battle of the Crater, as infamous as it was, is only eight hours of an eight-month battle and siege for the city of Petersburg between Grant and General Lee. I know we've shared some of the more famous battles and defeats for the U.S. colored troops, but Petersburg would have its victories, too, and victories for black Ohioans. The Battle of Newmarket Heights in the Petersburg area was a triumph for black troops. Really, in spite of their white leadership, men like General Benjamin Butler, Confederates who were facing these black regiments would often go after their white officers because they stick out like a sore thumb. And you know if you see a white soldier serving with a black regiment that he's an officer. Yet another downside to the segregation of the army. That happened in September at this battle that Southerners called Chaffin's Farm. But the black privates and sergeants regrouped. They fought their battle on their own and win a victory against the Confederates. Verb Washington rejoins us to tell us about the Battle of New Market Heights outside Petersburg.
3: So this battle takes place as part of the Siege of Petersburg. Petersburg was on the approaches to Richmond and so taking Petersburg would allow the taking of Richmond, which would allow the end of the Confederacy. So this is a, a critical moment in the nation's history. Interestingly enough, the 18th Corps uh, under General Butler had a central role uh, in this particular fight. Uh, so on 29th of September in 1864, the regiments lined up to assault the the trenches there outside of Petersburg. And for the 5th USCT, uh, their piece of this fight took place at uh, New Market Heights, sometimes also called Chapin's Farm. And the battle had six USCT regiments. Uh, the 4th, 5th and 6th uh, came in the, essentially the second wave after the first wave had been defeated. And so the first wave had come essentially online. So all of the regiments abreast, marching across the field at the same time. And they were savage, cut to ribbons by their Confederate defenders. And so the second wave decided to come in line or in column. And so essentially one regiment after another regiment after another regiment following on. Uh, And that worked no better. The challenge for the white officers in the USCT regiments was that they were distinct from their soldiers. Uh, And so the Confederates uh, were able to pick them off. And by probably the 30th minute of the 80-minute battle All of the officers of the 5th USCT had either been killed or wounded, leaving the Black soldiers to continue the fight on their own, uh, which fortunately for them, they did. So much so that four of them Penn, Bronson, Beattie, and Holland, who was the Sergeant Major but took command of the 5th USCT's Charlie Company, all earned the Medal of Honor. The Union drove the Confederates out of the entrenchments there at New Market Heights Union ends up taking the field, and so it's an amazing day for those who believe that the Black soldiers would not have fought. General Butler was able to get the, the notice and the recognition for the Black soldiers, uh, so much so that he actually commissioned a separate medal, uh, an Army of the James Medal for these soldiers, uh, not federally recognized, but certainly something that, the, that many of the soldiers treasured. Uh, and if you go to the uh, the National Museum of African-American History in Washington, D.C., you can actually see one of these medals still today.
2: Robert Pinn, the war hero from Massillon, Ohio, would lead the fifth U.S.C.T. to victory that day at New Market Heights. Kelly talks to us about the Black-led victory outside Petersburg and how Robert Pinn wins the Medal of Honor.
1: Now, at the Battle of New Market Heights, several, many, of the white officers are going to be injured or killed. We see black non-commissioned officers from the 4th, the 5th, the 6th, uh, a couple of other regiments take over. Pin actually leads men in his company. They not only um, fight in the morning, they're shifted uh, and they will continue to fight throughout the afternoon. And despite uh, his own injuries, Pin continues and serves throughout the day. He shot in the right arm, which uh, the right shoulder, which actually uh, partially paralyzes his right arm for the rest of his life. And he shot twice uh, in the left leg. And so he's one of the men that uh, uh, officers put forward for recognition. And in April of 1865, he's awarded the Medal of Honor.
2: One of the main battles being waged during the excellent movie Lincoln from Steven Spielberg in 2012 is the 1865 Battle of Fort Fisher. The President, played by Daniel Day-Lewis, maybe my favorite actor, War Secretary Edwin Stanton, they meet to discuss the battle plan, which was quite ambitious. An amphibious landing, naval bombardment, a complicated and really well-pulled off battle plan by the Union. In the movie, they crowd around the War Department to get updates from the telegraph office. A young Adam Driver plays the telegrapher, Samuel Beckwith, in those scenes. But Fort Fisher protects Wilmington, North Carolina, another great coastal city in the US today. It's the hometown of Michael Jordan. But Wilmington was one of the last, and really the largest, remaining ports in which the South could smuggle, you know, blockaded goods to feed the war effort. Kelly Missouri sets up the Battle of Fort Fisher, and there would actually be two battles in December of sixty-four, and again a more successful uh, venture by the Union in January of eighteen
1: sixty-five. Basically, it was the last substantial fortress on the Eastern Seaboard, and so this was the last place that the enemy could bring in much needed supplies. They're, they're not only low on military equipment, but, but food. And, and this is one of the few places uh, where they could protect incoming uh, ships. And so for Grant, um, it had great meaning uh, for really kind of closing down access to those needed supplies to continue war.
2: The 27th USCT is there for both battles of Fort Fisher. The first battle is not a success, but a month later, the 27th from Ohio is activated. We talked to Kelly Mazurek about the 27th's role at Fort Fisher that I had never heard about. Two Confederate commanders at Fisher attempt to escape in the battle's waning moments, and it would be the all-black Ohio 27th that is tasked with tracking them down and taking them prisoner. The Union victory at Fort Fisher is a critical blow to the Confederacy, after their surrender, the war would be over in just three months' time.
1: The first attempt in December, uh, which the land forces were under Benjamin Butler in December of 1864, uh, the 5th USCT from Ohio participated, and it, and it was a failure and uh, part of the reason why Butler's removed. The second attempt in January of 1865, both the 5th and the 27th, are going to participate, Uh, General Terry is now in command of the land troops. But just as the white troops are getting uh, prepared to storm and take down Fort Fisher after the initial uh, naval bombardments that really set up the the whole battle, there's a request for one of the Black regiments to lie in reserve. And and the 27th is selected. Called forward. They're they're put. They're told to once again lie down. uh, And they're lying on the ground waiting to be called in. After a while, they start to hear the shouts, they hear the hurrahs, uh, they see that the fort has fallen without them. There's this kind of level of disappointment that they didn't get to participate. But that won't be the end. The 27th plays a pivotal role that evening. Several of the commanders of the fort are going to try to escape, Colonels Lamb and Whiting. And the 27th is sent to try to capture, to stop their uh, escape. And while near Battery Buchanan, uh, these two enemy officers surrender to the 27th.
2: General Lee would surrender on April 9th at Appomattox. General Johnston, a couple weeks later in North Carolina, the war is over. Black troops would remain as an occupying force in the South. I like to think about black troops providing security and marching through the streets of Charleston, South Carolina that summer. How different a world had been created by this war. Black troops were maintaining order in the city that started the war, the original home of secession. But the Ohio troops come home and find a very similar world to the Ohio they left. The Buckeye State would struggle to ratify the 14th Amendment, In fact, the ratification would later be rescinded by the General Assembly a year later. The 15th Amendment, which ratified black male suffrage, that came down to just a couple of votes in Ohio. An entire war fought over these issues, and it's still the consensus is not there for any equal rights for black Ohioans. It's sad stuff. And Verb Washington spells out the battles in the Ohio legislature over the post-war 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments.
3: So most Ohioans supported the adoption of the 13th Amendment. Only one of the Ohio representatives in Congress opposed ratification. Uh, Governor John Bro uh, encouraged the Ohio General Assembly to approve it, and both houses really do so with significant majorities. The 14th was also ratified by Ohioans uh, less than six months after it was submitted by Congress. Curiously though, when the Union Party lost control of the Ohio legislature, Uh, the Democrats moved to rescind the ratification with the fear among a substantial number of white Ohioans uh, that African-Americans were receiving too many rights. Uh, Many whites feared that their position in society would decline if African-Americans gained true equality with them. And so despite the Ohio legislature's action though, the federal government continued to count Ohio as one of the three-fourths of the states necessary for the amendment's final approval. Ohio will get around to finally ratifying it the second time, September of 2003. Uh, So maybe just a little behind the curve on that one. The United States Congress submitted the 15th Amendment to the states for approval in February of 1869. The 15th really divides Ohioans. Uh, The Ohio Senate approved it by a single vote uh, and the House ratified it by two votes. Very progressive in the Northern counties, far less progressive in the Southern counties. And so where you lived in the state made a whole lot of differences as to your treatment uh, as a black citizen uh, in the post-war years.
2: Most black soldiers would return to the same life they led. But three of these soldiers that we followed before and during the war would go on to do some pretty amazing things. We start with our guest, Doug Edgerton. You can click the link in the show notes for his book, Thunder at the Gates. Again, I believe it to be the definitive book on the black Civil War experience. But Doug takes us through the successful post-war life of James Monroe Trotter from Chillicothe, Ohio. Trotter would muster out of the 55th Massachusetts and return home to his wife in Chillicothe before moving to Boston, Massachusetts, and eventually rising to the highest post available to black Americans in the federal government, that of Recorder of Deeds in the District of Columbia.
4: That it. I mean, a lot of them did come back and get involved in, in kind of local affairs. And Trotter, Trotter he became an activist in, in Boston and got a number of jobs. Um, with the federal government, he was a recorder of deeds, uh, which is kind of a nice patronage job that, that Frederick Douglass had also had. He goes, he goes back and gets his fiance Virginia Isaacs. This being a small world, um, actually, is a descendant of Betty Hemings, who's the mother of Jefferson's enslaved concubine Sally Hemings. But so she is a descendant by a different different child. Um, he yeah, goes back and, and marries her and then brings her back to Boston and settles in Boston. He gets a job in the post office as a clerk, and again, he's literate. She, she bears two boys, and they both die. Um, and so apparently she decides that there's something wrong with the heir in Boston. So goes back to give birth in, in Ohio to the third child, that does come back to Boston. So they have several more children together, uh, two boys and, and a girl. Um, so no, he, he does fairly well. Um, finally, uh, Clark, who has less seniority, who's white, um, it's promotion that he doesn't. And so he quits the post office, but then does get a job. I'm in Washington, D.C. as the recorder of deeds. Uh, He becomes so unhappy with Republicans who, after the death of Lincoln and after the death of Thad Stevens, are are backing away from black rights pretty fast. He becomes first an independent and then finally a Democrat, which I I don't really understand because I do understand his disaffection with Republicans at the time, but Democrats, they they were (laughs) even worse. Um, So it's kind of a token. Grover Cleveland makes him a recorder. Of deeds, and uh, he replaces actually Douglas because Douglas was a Republican, and so it's a it's a, it's a patronage job.
2: But it's about the highest job you can achieve I, I, at that time in the in the federal yep. government in D.C. Yeah, yeah,
4: no, it was it was a nice job, and, and uh, interestingly, Douglas's daughter remained on as as kind of a secretary in a court, despite the fact that her, her dad had been replaced. And and there was there was nothing personal, you know, between Douglas and, and Protter. It was just it, it was kind of larger political consideration. So they you know they liked and respected each other. And of course, Lewis Douglas had known Trotter from the Army.
2: Our guest Kelly Mazurk talks to us about the life of Robert Pinn after the war, Medal of Honor winner from Maslin, Ohio. He also went on to a distinguished life in Maslin, representing fellow veterans in lawsuits regarding Civil War soldier pensions. Those were a huge deal to vets and their families throughout the 19th century.
1: There is a short period of time that he is going to be in education. He's both a teacher and a principal, both in Illinois and in South Carolina. But by the late uh, 1870s, he's back in Maslin and he's clerking for a lawyer. He will himself be admitted to the Ohio Bar in 1879. He will take on uh, land cases. But what I think he's most known for, uh, or at least recognized for, is that he will be a successful pension attorney and he, is, uh, he serves uh, both white and black veterans in Stark County. He's involved with the Grand Army of the Republic. He's a very strong uh, believer in recognizing the role of, of soldiers who fought and uh, preserved the United States. And he will be the only African-American commander of an integrated post when the Hart Post 134 of Maslin uh, elects him in 1884. And an interesting uh, part about Penn's uh, beliefs, he advocates against all black GAR posts. He believes that they should all be integrated, uh, that all serve the same nation and all uh, restore lives uh, for the same cause.
2: The last black Ohioan that we only briefly touched on earlier was Milton Holland. Holland signed up at age 18 in his hometown of Athens, Ohio, and he served in the All-Ohio Regiment, the 5th USCT, Verb Washington's great book, Eagle on Their Buttons, documents. Milton Holland would become a sergeant major during the Battle of Newmarket Heights. He would be the leader, really, of the 5th USCT in that victory, another black Ohioan to win the Medal of Honor during the Civil War. Verb Washington joins us one last time to discuss the successful life of Milton Holland following the war and his giant headstone at Arlington National Cemetery.
3: In large measure, they went back to the lives that they had had before the war. Uh, There wasn't any real sense that Ohio had a great appreciation for what they had done. There, There was nothing that had led to a greater sense of law or equality or a drive for equality even amongst Ohio citizens. Probably the most successful of the folks in the regiment had been Milton Holland. You know, he moved to Washington, D.C., where he set up the Alpha Insurance Company as the first Black insurance company in the nation. He became a postmaster. If you go to the Arlington National Cemetery, you can find him buried there, his tombstone indicating his Medal of Honor. And when you think of Arlington National Cemetery, it's often thought of as the place where everything is equal. And so everybody has the same size grave marker, you know, whether you're a general or whether you're a private, um, but that wasn't always the case. And, and uh, when I found um, Milton Holland's grave, his tombstone is massive. Uh, it is a very large piece of, uh, of granite, much larger than, than most of the ones at the time had been paid for by members of the, uh, the Washington DC black community. Uh, because they believed that, you know, he deserved lionization as a, a hero of the war.
2: As we close our episode, Ohio vs. Bravery, you know, one of the things we wanted to do, we got Juneteenth coming up, was to shine a light on some of the most important civil rights warriors in our country's history. The African-American soldiers' contributions are too often overlooked. I mean, 180,000 black men served in the U.S. Army, another 20,000 in the Navy. As Kelly points out, it's not just those registered in the armed forces that assisted in the Union victory and, and you know, bringing about the end of slavery in this country. We didn't even have time to talk about things on the black home front, the important role women and families played in the war effort. And as Kelly talks to us about the historical importance of those contributions by all kinds of black Americans, including our southern enslaved African Americans who, who claimed their freedom and helped achieve the Union victory in the Civil War.
1: The participation and, and actions of Black Americans is under-recognized today. You have, as you mentioned, about 180,000 men who served in the United States Colored Troops and they offered their lives for the preservation of a nation that did not recognize them as, as equal citizens or as citizens at all. And you have close to 20,000 African-American men who served in the Navy. So. Together, this is about 10% of United States military force. We don't want to forget there were thousands of other men and women who served as paid laborers. And and this is true in Ohio white regiments. Many of the officers paid black men to go along uh, as their servants. These were free men and others were paid as laborers for the United States uh, army. And we have an unknown number of enslaved people who claimed their own freedom and taking advantage of the disorder of wartime to be free. And so when we look at uh, collectively all of these Black Americans, whether they're from the North, the South, the Midwest, whether they were free, enslaved, formerly enslaved, uh, whether they were soldiers, they were sailors, they were citizens, they all helped deny the enemy, the opportunity and the means to continue their attempts to destroy the United States.
2: Our book recommendation today is our guest Doug Edgerton's Thunder at the Gates, the Black Civil War Regiments that Redeemed America from 2016. As we said, Doug looks at the lives of 14 members of those first and most important Massachusetts regiments, the 54th, Uh, James Monroe Trotter from Ohio's 55th and the 5th USCT Cavalry. We asked about his book title, which actually comes from a famous poem about the 54th leader, Robert Gould Shaw. He dies at, at Wagner on the South Carolina coast. If you look at our cover, it's a depiction of that battle and his death, the famous first battle for the United States black troops. The poem is by famous poet, Paul Lawrence Dunbar, Black poet from Dayton, Ohio, actually born and died in Dayton. His father served in the 5th Cavalry of Massachusetts Regiment that Doug talks about in the book. And we talk with Doug about his title and his approach to telling this important story.
4: So there was a Harlem Renaissance poet named Paul Lawrence Dunbar, uh, quite famous in the early 20th century. And his father had been, his father had been a former Kentucky slave who was in the 55th and also in the 5th Cavalry. And so he wrote a number of poems about black soldiers. Uh, He wrote one, something called Robert Gould Shaw. Um, And he uses the term thunder at the gates. And I really like that in part because these guys, I mean, they're, they're literally thundering at the gates of Wagner, but they're also thundering at the gates of Northern racism, you know, laws that don't allow them to vote. New York had a property qualification. Uh, it imposed on blacks when back to the 1820s. it did not have on whites. So Frederick Douglass could vote. He owned a house and a business in Rochester. But Charles and Lewis worked for dad as printers and they couldn't vote. And, and you know, Lewis is 23 when he joins the, the army. Uh, and so and so the, the book opens with, with Dunbar's poem. So I, th- I thought the worst thing I could do would be to try to kind of write this regimental history in which, there's all this, all this data, 64.2%, that kind of thing, as opposed mm-hmm. to really kind of telling human stories. Um, so I picked out 14 people, uh, 10 black, four whites, and one, one of course could not you know, ignore Rob Shaw and the two Hallowell brothers. Um, Ned Hallowell leads the 54th after Rob's death, uh, Charles Francis Adams Jr., uh, who I really dislike. Yeah,
2: you
4: uh, do. <laughs> all black Fifth Calvary. Um, but else, but I, you know, I didn't want this to be the kind of white savior story and I wanted to kind of really get it at the guys in the regiment and to be honest I I cheated to a certain extent you know I followed people who left behind you know a good paper trail and and obviously the Douglas boys were always writing back to mom and dad you know history is the past recovered and sometimes it's just kind of hard to get at those stories I I think that's probably why it's easy to write a book collectively about you know black soldiers but kind of doing doing a simple uh, USCT regiment um, is going to be harder to do because the, the documentation just isn't there
2: That'll do it. Thanks so much to our guests, Emmanuel Dabney, Kelly Missouri, the incomparable Verb Washington, and the great author Doug Edgerton. A dream team of scholars for this episode, and we hope we did some justice to those African-American heroes that served our country with bravery during the Civil War. Don't forget to like and follow us on Facebook. Go check out the other great history shows on the Evergreen Podcast Network. Go to evergreenpodcast.com. We're digging on Zach Cornell's podcast, Conflicted, right now, his two-part episode, About Israel's Yom Kippur War in 1973, especially illuminating in recent weeks following another conflict between Israel and the Palestinians. In two weeks, we'll be back to discuss the greatest lawyer in American history. We'll be joined by a Pulitzer Prize winner, we'll be joined by a winner of the National Book Award, and another star-studded group of guests will join us to discuss episode 6, Ohio vs. Lawyering. Hope you're having a great summer. Get out there, enjoy this post-pandemic world, and these new roaring 20s that we're hopefully moving towards. We'll see you next time on Ohio vs. the World.